When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I am your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are going to be talking about conspiracy theories, or more broadly, conspiratorial thinking. And so one of the, I guess, inspirations for this episode... Um, which I will be linking the sources for this uh, on my website, is the Channel 5 video, Channel 5 with Andrew Callahan video about the Q conference, Um, which if you're not familiar with Andrew Callahan, he used to make videos under the channel All Gas No Breaks, um, but has had to strike out and and make a, a different channel as an independent creator. Um, And he goes around and he interviews people um, in a very, I would call it a non-judgmental stance. He, he really just allows the people at the events he's at to kind of um, explain their stances and explain their views without too much commentary from him. And so um, a recent video he posted was at a Q conference where people from, I would say, many walks of life are coming to engage in events that center around the QAnon conspiracy theory, um, and we're kind of seeing the evolution of Q um, as Trump has been out of office. So, you know, this conspiracy theory is inherently political, um, as it, it does it does revolve around former President Trump and really came into prominence during his term, but the reality is, is that QAnon really covers a variety of conspiracy theories, and so we're seeing things like you know, vaccine hesitancy or anti-vaccination sentiments, flat earth beliefs, a lot of different types of conspiratorial thinking getting kind of wrapped up in the snowball of QAnon. And so I thought it would be a good idea to kind of address where conspiratorial thinking comes from, from a psychological point of view, and why at this point in our history and our political situation that conspiracy theories are so prevalent and maybe so maybe so interesting or appealing to people and, and helping them make sense of the world. So, you know, this video Q and the Q conference just shows different speakers and different people um, involved in the QAnon world. And one thing that I found really interesting about the video um, is that there's a, a segment where the host is participating in a press pool interview of Michael Flynn, former General Michael Flynn, and he is pretty explicit about hiding his involvement with QAnon, even though there's it's been well documented online that General Flynn is involved in QAnon and has been seen repeating like a vow to QAnon and basically like, just participating in a lot of the more specific aspects of Q. Um, but in the interview, he's like denying that he even knows what QAnon is, 
um, even though the conference was pretty much billed as a place for Q supporters to come and, and talk with each other. And I, I just found that very interesting that he's using this conspiracy theory to whatever he's doing, right? I don't want to speculate about his motives, whether it's, you know, it's he really believes in it or it's just to make money, like, whatever that may be. But he he does have this awareness that you can't necessarily publicly claim to believe in Q in the same way that you might publicly cl claim that you believe in other things or hold different other types of political beliefs. So, and, and I say all this to just kind of point out that it seems like some of the Q people who are more prominent have figured out, who have stayed prominent have figured out the balance of supporting Q and maybe dog whistling to supporters that they are on board with Q, but then to other media sources or other audiences pretty explicitly denouncing Q. And I think we're seeing this with a lot of the House representatives who have been under fire recently for QAnon beliefs. And so with that all said, with this QAnon stuff sort of going underground um, or underground in, in plain view, I think it's important for us to be able to still identify what is conspiratorial thinking and where does it come from. Because when we understand the sort of societal and individual and environmental factors that contribute to developing a belief in a conspiracy theory, I think it makes it easier for us as people and for us as a culture to kind of combat um, conspiracy theories, conspiratorial thinking, you know, whatever we call it. So. Uh, I, before I dive into this article, which I, I really love, it's this article um, by Joseph M. Pierre out of UCLA, who wrote a socio-epistemic model of why people believe in conspiracy theories. So I'm going to go through this article and talk about sort of the the external and environmental factors that he, he points to as to why these types of beliefs sort of come about. Um, but before I do that, I wanted to highlight a couple of news stories that I think have uh, been really interesting and, and also highlight this shift in QAnon. Um, and one is from NBC News from a few months ago that talked about how QAnon's new plan is to get people into school boards or more local offices um, and to start shying away from the specific term QAnon. And within the context of what we see of General Flynn and his ability to sort of mask his involvement in the movement, I think that this is a really interesting warning sign of how Q is going to continue to pop up. Um, and I think there will always be, there will always be people who are going to be pretty like fervently supporters of Q. Like they're going to be the zealots on the front line with the where we go one, we go all stickers on their cars and, you know, the cue signs at things. Um, there's always going to be that group of people that are, are explicit that they believe in cue. But I think we're going to start to see this wave of people who are able to use coded language to cover up their alignment with cue in a way that will signal to the fervent cue supporters that they're on their team, but will uh, pull in people who are not believers in QAnon to support them. And so this article highlights someone who, I mean, pretty explicitly in a video, talks about how it's important for QAnon supporters to get into school boards because that's an area where pedophilia is as rampant as, as he says, as the entertainment industry, um, which is upset. That, that, that 
I can see how that type of worldview is like that's incredibly upsetting and would drive you to act. Um, but so this this gentleman that they they are profiling is saying that we need to get a new school boards because that's where the pedophilia is happening and that's Q's biggest thing is to end pedophilia and basically round up every sex trafficker or pedophile that they are imagining are are in all of these institutions. Um, but he also talks publicly about I don't believe in Q. Uh, you know Q pulls away from the mission to fight sex trafficking and denies previous statements he's made about masks being used by child traffickers. So on, you know, on social media in his communities that are open to Q, he's pretty explicitly saying we need to go into the school boards to, to get all the pedophiles. And he's using Q talking points and saying that he believes in Q. But then publicly, when he's being interviewed or when he's campaigning, he's distancing himself from Q. And so that is, I think, very worrying that the talking points are still there, but the open affiliation is not. Um, because we saw this kind of happen last summer with the Save the Children protests, where well-meaning people who you know, rightly believe that child abuse is wrong, right? and I want to be very clear that child abuse is wrong, um, well-meaning people who believe that kind of got sucked into the Save the Children movement um, and were maybe unknowingly reposting Q content or showing up at Q events. Um, and that's how people get sucked into these beliefs, right? They they come in with a shared purpose. Um, they come in under something that we may say is like a universal truth, right? That like children should not be harmed. It's a universal truth that everyone is going to hold and you're getting them in under that pretense, and then once they're in and they have the social and community connections, then you hit them with the, the stuff like the storm is coming and the president is going to mass execute all the government officials, right? So, like, you don't get people in the door with that, talk, starting with that talking point, but you get them in the door with, we have to protect our children. Um, and one that one that's kind of getting wrapped up in this is the critical race theory, which I'm going to be addressing in a different episode, but I just wanted to highlight that as how this has become this snowball of conspiracy theories, that it's no longer just about the pedophiles and the government's role in stopping pedophiles, but it's starting to encompass all of these different things, and now we're branched out into the education system is just as bad as the entertainment industry, which is just as bad as... I don't know what's going to be next, and all of the internet. <laughs> um, but so this this NBC article really highlights how there are people who are in QAnon who are becoming aware enough of we have to shift the way that we speak about our talking points. And I think a lot of this has also come from the crackdowns on social media, is because if you get banned for saying the term QAnon on Facebook, you're going to implicitly learn that okay, it's the word QAnon, but it wasn't the content. And if I rephrase the content and I don't get kicked off Facebook, then it's not the content that's the problem, it was just the words that I was using. So, you know, this is a big part of this issue as well. Another article that I found pretty interesting uh, was something in The Independent uh, from earlier this month that talked about uh, a statement from the Department of Homeland Security about the threat of political violence from Trump supporters, or more largely people who continue to believe that um, the presidential election, the 2020 presidential election was rigged or false or 
fraudulent or whatever. The latest iteration of this type of conspiratorial thinking or this conspiracy theory is that later in August there will be some sort of event where the overall uh, election results will be overturned and it'll be finally confirmed that Trump has been president the whole time um, and that you know Joe Biden is not our current president. And this is a uh, reiteration of, of a conspiracy theory or a, a type of thought that's kind of reappeared every month. There's always been some sort of arbitrary date where uh, this this particular group of people who uh, hold to this idea, there's always some sort of arbitrary date that they believe is going to be the date, the time that uh, the results will be overturned and the true president will be sworn in again. Um, and nothing has really happened. There's been like some small events that have happened around these. There was like some protests at state capitals, um, some more smaller things. There hasn't been anything as close to the scale of the January 6th uh, insurrection. Basically, this article is just highlighting the fact that this type of rhetoric is continuing to be spread online. And so whether it means that, and let's, you know, I'm maybe going to keep my opinions about the Department of Homeland Security to myself for now. Um, but I think the main issue of this article is not that there is going to be a plot to do anything violent, but that there's still this kind of rhetoric uh, being spewed or being continued to pass around, and the the type of information being presented and the way that the information spreads across social media or smaller groups online contributes to the firming up of this belief in election fraud or that we don't have a legitimate president. And later in the episode, I'll be talking about how that uh, like the presence of misinformation ties into how conspiracy theories become strengthened. But I, I just, this article does kind of highlight how, even though, you know, it's, it's been what, like eight months since the president was sworn in since the inauguration. Um, and that, that this type of thinking is still continuing to grow. Like the conspiratorial thought doesn't go away in the, uh, presence of evidence of the conspiracy conspiracy doesn't exist. Uh, there, so just like presenting information doesn't stop the conspiracy theory. So those are just two stories that have kind of coming up that will help to highlight some of the information that we'll be going over in the article by Pierre. spend some time discussing um, this article by Joseph M. Pierre called Mistrust and Misinformation, a Two-Component Socio-Epistemic Model of Belief in Conspiracy Theories. Uh, and this was published in the Journal of Social and Political Psychology in 2020. So I thought this was a good one because it is pretty recent. And so although the, the article doesn't explicitly name QAnon, <laughs> uh, I think it's kind of, you know, implicit in in which conspiracy theories uh, we're talking about here. So, you know, Pierre starts out with a, a review of the idea of conspiracy theories as uh, psychopathology. So, you know, like previous studies have correlated belief in conspiracy theories and certain traits like um, paranoia, uh, need for control, 
um, and certain cognitive biases. Um, and so basically he's saying, like, although that has been, you know, demonstrated in literature, it doesn't necessarily mean that a belief in a conspiracy theory means that we would consider that person to be delusional or to have a formal mental illness. So, And I really like that he makes this point that uh, belief in conspiracy theory, which he calls BCT, which I think is so fun, <laughs> um, but belief in conspiracy theory is not is not mutually exclusive with mental illness. And I think that has a lot of implications for the way that we interact with people who believe in conspiracy theories, that we don't need to inherently diagnose a mental illness or claim that someone has a mental illness because they engage with conspiratorial thinking. So he, he also discusses a bunch of other limitations in current research. And basically he's setting up this, this idea that um, we don't have, we haven't been using like a standardized theory or standardized conceptualization of believing in conspiracy theories. And he also does differentiate between people who may believe in the aspect of conspiracy such as where, where like questioning authority is important and people who are full-blown into a full conspiracy theory so he differentiates between you know people who maybe are vaccine hesitant and are searching for answers on the internet uh, through you know quote-unquote research versus people who are fully convinced that the earth is flat and every government agency is conspiring to you know conceal that fact from us. So he is differentiating between that and almost like identifying that belief in conspiracy is a spectrum. Um, and I think a lot of us are very familiar with this idea of, of thinking outside of a binary pole system with a lot of aspects of identity. And so it makes sense that we would apply this to the belief in conspiracy theory as well, that there are, you know, people on the end of the spectrum who may just be more prone to a type of conspiratorial way of thinking, such as not trusting authority versus people on the, you know, with a range through the spectrum of full on belief in like a full, a full conspiracy. So, you know, and, and within that spectrum of beliefs, we will see where people kind of get picked up. And so I think using this idea of the spectrum, uh, kind of goes back to the point I was making earlier about how QAnon uh, kind of gets people in with a topic or an issue that's maybe more universally understood or, or believed in, um, and then maybe drags you along the continuum, right? So they start with the premise of we need to save the children. So someone who's on this end of the spectrum where you just maybe have a healthy skepticism can see how you come into, if you, if you don't have a if you're able to apply that healthy level of skepticism to the things that the QAnon people are saying as well, you can see how it gets really easy to kind of get sucked into, I guess, the QAnon, the flat earth pipeline <laughs> is one way that we could call it. But, uh, you know, along this, the farther along you are on the spectrum, the more vulnerable you may be to endorsing a full-on conspiracy theory. So that's kind of where um, Pierre makes this case that previous research on conspiracy theory uh, doesn't differentiate between types of thinking and maybe is correlating it too highly with psychopathology or, or with full-blown mental illnesses. So then he goes in to discuss his two-component model. He does acknowledge that it's not necessarily validated in that we haven't been doing research using this specific model. He is, he is kind of presenting this as a theoretical 
way of thinking about these ideas. Going into component one, which he labels as epistemic mistrust, this is the idea that the sources of where we get our knowledge we cannot trust. So epistemic refers to the way in which we gain knowledge or construct knowledge, and then of course mistrust being we don't trust the sources of this. He also explains that in a context of a society, so like in the context of the culture in which we live in, uh, this epistemic mistrust is specifically about mistrust of information coming from sources th from authority. So I think the perfect example of this in like the COVID-19 pandemic is like an inherent mistrust in any information that comes from the CDC. And so you might have seen people online or even in your real life who say things like, well, at the beginning, people like Dr. Fauci and the CDC were saying you didn't need to wear a mask. And then a month later, they changed their mind and said you had to wear a mask, so I don't trust them. So that, where that is coming from is this fear that a source of authority who, you know, Dr. Fauci, the NIH, the CDC are considered authorities of medical information, that this source is inherently giving me fake information. Uh, and that I cannot trust anything that comes out of this authority body. So again, he puts this on a spectrum of sort of like generic skepticism on one end, right? Which I think is actually something that we should consider as a positive, right? Like, like, a, like a sense of skepticism about information that comes from the government or information that comes from a sense of authority can help you co combat a cognitive bias that just because an authority source says it, it means that it's true. So there, there is a, a usefulness for skepticism, but then of course um, going toward the other end of the spectrum where we see this sort of like um, like full-on belief that you know we can't trust anything, we can't trust any sources of information, um, and that in fact all of these authorities are conspiring, they are connected, um, and they're, they're working together to put out information that will harm us. So you see how there's a difference there between being skeptical of, you know, this is an institution with its own motives and goals versus this is an institution that is working with a network of other institutions to, I don't know, kill us all. Um, so that lies at the heart of this epistemic mistrust is we don't believe the sources of information. So next within this section, Pierre uh, goes into what he is defining as cultural mistrust. Um, and he uses the example of the black community and conspiracy theories surrounding the origin of HIV and AIDS, um, which if you've never heard this before, there is a belief that HIV was created by the CIA and specifically planted in black communities and then specifically they were denied treatment to progress the virus from H into full-blown AIDS. Uh, and that's a, they, they did uh, research around this type of conspiracy theory and found that it was held by a pretty significant portion of this, the sampled population. Um, and so Pierre lays out that traditionally this type of conspiracy theory would be uh, conceptualized as like cultural paranoia and almost as like we're pathologizing the whole community of being paranoid you know like you know and implicit in this is almost like this idea of wow how silly is the black community that they believe in this and you know we know that's not true 
Uh, and Pierre does an actually a really great job of laying out why there is medical mistrust or, or a, a propensity to this type of thinking in the black community. And he cites things like the Tuskegee syphilis study, uh, which if you're not familiar with, was a study that ran for almost 40 years uh, with African-American men or with black men who had been diagnosed and had syphilis who were uh, told they were participating, that they were being given treatment so they would come to the clinic you know, we I believe it was monthly, but they would come regularly to the clinic and be told that they were giving treatment for syphilis, but the reality was is that they were given no treatment and were being studied to see what is the extent of syphilis if we just let it go untreated. So that's like a huge problem. And you can see that, and that's a real thing that's been well documented. Um, and that was just something that began in the 1930s. And so there are, there's examples of, of things, you know, far before 1932 in the black community that would contribute also to a, a belief in, or a mistrust in sources of authority, particularly medical authority. And so you can see a direct line between the Tuskegee syphilis study and this belief that the CIA is purposefully introducing this virus into our commu- into the community to study its effects, right? That, that There's like a direct line there, how that could be true. And it's not like we did much to improve material conditions of this community in the years following the ending of the Tuskegee syphilis study. So there's no reason for that to not still influence the way that the community thinks about and approaches medical mistrust. So I'm just kind of laying that out there as an example. Um, And I do like that Pierre notes that the label of cultural paranoia is inherently pathologizing uh, and that there's no reason to pathologize it when we have this extensive history and well-documented lived experience of the community uh, with medical authority or with with authority sources of information. Uh, So he, he... says and cites some people who reframed it as cultural mistrust. He then goes on to connect um, power imbalance and conspiracy theories in a way that I think is really interesting, where he cites some studies that have, or some authors who have in the past said that, well, marginalized communities are more likely to support conspiracy theories and and it's a way to take back power. Um, But he counters that with the well-documented evidence that dictators or political parties in power use conspiracy theories as well. You know, and I think we have we have just lived through a perfect example of that where we had a president, a sitting president endorsing conspiracy theories um, even before like pre the election fraud. Right. Like all the conspiracy theories about covid, you know, those were perpetrated by people who who held power Um, and that's just you know that is one example but Pierre does cite multiple examples and he he makes this statement that it is often the minority groups who lack in power who find themselves the targets rather than the perpetrators of conspiracy theories and I think that is really important to contextualize the history of conspiracy theories um, and how we see things like anti-semitism pop up in pretty much every iteration of a conspiracy theory. Um, And this is true with QAnon. There are explicit beliefs in QAnon that target people 
of either the ethnicity or the or the faith of Judaism. Um, one such example is the constant harping on George Soros as like this mastermind who's paying protesters or organizing voter fraud and all this. Like that's explicitly anti-Semitic because of who George Soros is. But there are also coded language within QAnon that harkens back to anti-Semitic propaganda in the past. And one of the examples that I've seen highlighted a lot and that I think is really accessible to understand this phenomenon is the QAnon belief that, you know, elites are not only sex trafficking children, but killing them to drink their blood or, you know, turn their, what is it, their livers into adrenochrome, (laughs) right? Like this, the, the, and again, that's the the more heavier stuff that you're not going to encounter with these people who are who are using the coded language. But so, you know, this belief that, oh, the elites are drinking the blood of children actually harkens back to a document called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion that was a fake document that was used to show that Jewish people uh, are basically cannibals and are using the blood of children and all this stuff to further their power. Uh, totally fake, totally, totally, completely fake, obviously not true, but it pops up over and over again um, in conspiracy theories across time. Um, And so anytime you you find yourself in a belief system where a group is being told or is being labeled as like baby eaters or drinking the blood of children, uh, there's a direct line back to the uh, protocols of Zion. So that's just something to look out for and serves as an example of how a minority group who lacks power and pretty, you know, historically Jewish people have lacked power and have been pretty systematically discriminated against. They are the targets of that conspiracy theory. They are not perpetrating that conspiracy theory to gain back power. It's being used against them to keep them down. So I I really do like how he talks about that. And I think it is... um, an important way that we can examine conspiracy theories is to notice who is being labeled as the victim and who is being labeled as the perpetrator within the conspiracy theory um, and who is the source of it, right? So who is bringing this information to you? So then Pierre moves into a description of the second component, which he labels as misinformation processing. And a a component of this misinformation processing is that moving from component one, which was the mistrust in sources of authority, uh, it creates a vacuum where uh, people who are maybe believing these theories um, no longer have sources of knowledge because they cannot trust uh, traditional authority sources or traditional institutions for information. So it opens up a vacuum where they're going to be going searching for explanations or information about the phenomenon that they are observing. And so in this case where we're addressing conspiracy theories, uh, the conspiracy theory fills in that vacuum. Um, And one of the reasons why it may be so appealing to someone who already has a sense of mistrust of sources of knowledge is that often the conspiracy theory is the opposite of what the authority source was saying. So this is so clear with COVID stuff, right? Like an example of this is with vaccines, right? An authority source like the CDC comes out and says, you should get vaccinated. Here are the reasons why. Here's why the vaccine is safe. And the conspiracy theory 
that, you know, one that I've heard is that, you know, getting the vac- the vaccine will actually cause you to shed the virus. So you'll infect more people when you're vaccinated. That's like exactly the opposite of how a vaccine works, right? The CDC is saying get the vaccine because you w- will be less likely to spread the virus. And the conspiracy theories are coming in and saying don't get the vaccine because the vaccine makes you more likely to spread the virus. It's It's like looking in a mirror, right? So Pierre is making this case that this is why the misinformation processing is the second component of how people get pulled more deeply into believing a conspiracy theory, because in that vacuum of not trusting the authority sources where knowledge comes from, a conspiracy theory can fill in that vacuum. And something that, you know, maybe something that we might consider silly, like the belief that the earth is flat, might uh, not have been something we would endorse uh if there was no vacuum, right? If we could trust authority, we could trust our sources of information, but within that vacuum, the belief in a flat earth suddenly becomes a lot more interesting and that makes a lot more sense because it's filling in that vacuum. So Pierre goes on to highlight how the misinformation processing becomes such an issue in belief in conspiracy theory. Um, And he, he talks about how there are some authors out there who conceptualize a conspiracy theorist as someone who is, you know, doing their research or is trying to be a scientist and looking for knowledge, um, but that that we can't use the term research for looking at misinformation and just unattributed sources online. Um, That's not research when compared to empiric scientific process. And that you know, when we're not doing empiric research or peer-reviewed research, right, where someone else is getting eyes on the information and it's coming to you, the consumer, with this assumption that multiple people have looked at this and agree on the conclusions and the process with which how the conclusions were reached, um, there are a lot of spaces for bias to slip in. And if you are uh, someone who is searching to fill your knowledge gap, that vacuum, caused by epistemic mistrust, but you are unable to differentiate between biased content or to identify biases, then you're going to be more likely to um, continue this process of allowing misinformation to fill that vacuum and processing that misinformation as if it was true. Um, And Pierre cites um, an article that I've I've actually read that I also really like by Van Prusen, uh, which I'll include in the sources as well. Um, And one of the examples that that article gives is the illusory pattern perception as a way that conspiracy theory or conspiratorial thinking uh, arises. And the illusory pattern perception is this phenomenon that our brain does where it seeks to find patterns in random, unconnected data. So one of the best examples of this is if you've ever seen those pictures of the piece of toast that has like Jesus's face in it, right? So we wouldn't see Jesus's face in that piece of toast if it weren't for the illusory pattern perception, because our brains are constantly doing the work of trying to connect the dots between seemingly unrelated or truly unrelated points of data. So in the toast example, all of the burn, the char marks on the toast are the random data points, and our brain has done the work for us of connecting those points to summon up the image of Christ, (laughs) essentially. And so when we apply this to uh, 
conspiracy theory, you can see how, you know, I read a story over here that said this, I saw a Facebook post that said this, uh, you know, I saw a tweet that said this, and a YouTube video that said this. The brain is doing the work for us of connecting all of those sources of, of misinformation so that we can somehow start to build uh, a connection and a pattern across those. And this is how beliefs in, you know, institutions collaborating together um, start to arise out of misinformation. Pierre goes on to, to outline other types of specific cognitive or information processing biases that c contribute to this uh, phenomenon, and I'm, I'm not going to spend time going into them right now, and I, I could spend some time later in different episodes going through different types of cognitive biases or processing biases, um, but I will recommend that if you look... if looking at this article, you can kind of break down and see all the places that he's citing um, that have documented how these types of biases and this type of processing misinformation contributes to strengthening the conviction of a belief and shifting the window in what you perceive to be absurd or not. So as you, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? As you engage with conspiracy theory more and more, you become exposed to more and more absurd things. It shifts the window to what you think is acceptable, so you start to believe the more and more absurd things, um, and you start to believe all of the information that you're processing because of the cognitive biases. So this this in basically sums up the, the two components of the models, right? We have a lack of trust in authority sources, uh, which leads to a vacuum, which is then filled in with misinformation. And so one of the things that is important, I think, to combat this is to, to continue to practice safe engagement with online sources. So this can include things like if it's posted online to a social media site with no source, it probably isn't true. So that, you know, if you see something that is in a meme that's not linked to an article or a study, uh, it's most likely not true. If you see something that's just on a TikTok video that's not linked to a source, it's most likely not true. And so um, when you see something that is posted online, doing the, the kind of background work of checking the sources of where that information has come from is a great way to combat this misinformation. And so a red flag is if information is posted without any sources. Um, a, mis a red flag is if information is posted with a source that's not um, a reputable source. And I know that that is a fraught word and it comes up to, you know, I, I'm sure it's bringing up to mind things like fake news and the mainstream media. Um, and so, yeah, there's there are sources that are considered reputable that still have biases, right? So the person writing the article or the institution publishing the article is still coming at it with, they've processed the information through their own biases. So you want to read in, take in the information and then using that healthy skepticism <laughs> that we discussed before, figure out, you know, where is this person applying their own bias versus where are they just reporting the information. Um, and one thing that I would encourage you to do is use Google Scholar <laughs> and not just use Google, uh, because Google Scholar will pull up for you sources that are considered empiric or peer-reviewed. So they have been reviewed by colleagues who are knowledgeable in the field and have been assessed to be contributing to science 
um, regardless of if the reviewer agrees with the outcome or not. It's not about the outcome, but about how the person arrived at the outcome. And they're evaluating the article to see if the process of arriving to this outcome is rigorous and as unbiased as possible. Um, and in the wake of COVID, a lot of databases have actually specifically made COVID articles free to access online uh, through websites like Google Scholar or through PubMed, which is the NIH database. So when you go to look up, and I would say specifically for COVID information, you know, go to these sources that are making rigorous scientific data available to you. And if you're going to go read through them and finding that I don't understand them, they're very difficult, or I don't trust the people that they're coming from, look for science educators or science communicators who are, you know, using those sources. So for example, like I just did in this article, right? Or in this episode, I found this article, I told you where it was from, I explained process of how this guy um, cited research and some of the limitations of it. Uh, and, you know, I broke it down into more plain language. And if you go to read the source article, you're going to see that it's not, not so easy to read. So look for people who are doing this type of work who are either writing up um, blog posts or social media posts where they are sourcing from these empiric studies but are translating it into language that's more easily accessible um, or to people who are creating content like podcasts or you know television shows or something where it's very clear and they're transparent about the sources of their information so transparency within like communication about this type of stuff is so 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 important because then it gives you the option of going and looking at the source itself and saying, you know, is this lining up with what the person said um, in their content that they created based on it? So from here, uh, what do we do with this information? <laughs> right, we've talked about this two-component model, how it results in a vacuum of information that misinformation can sneak into. So Pierre does um, give a couple of, of recommendations or implications for this information and states that in reducing the mistrust aspect, increasing trustworthiness of the institution and authority must come before expecting the public to trust. So there are some studies of the demonstrated uh, if authority institutions are more transparent about areas where there is uncertainty, allowing the public to participate more interactively with these authority sources, um, so that would be on like a systemic level, right? Like this transparency and public interaction is going to be the places where uh, systemically institutions can start to build back more trust. Um, now, I don't know if anyone is listening to this who <laughs> runs like the government, <laughs> uh, but that would be my that would be a recommendation that the data is backing up that's that you know at least beginning with this transparency of you know these are areas where we don't know can help to start to build back some of the trust between the institution and the public um, a lot of research that focuses on specifically medical conspiracy beliefs which typically includes 
anti-vaccination beliefs or vaccine hesitancy, a lot of that research has suggested that actually one-on-one -on -one conversations between a healthcare provider and a patient um, does more to reduce the vaccine hesitancy. And you may have seen stuff like this on the news. There's been some articles coming out about physicians that have basically an open door policy of if you need to come ask questions about the vaccine, please do. And in fact, a, a podcast that I really love called Sawbones, I'll link to their episode on this, talked about, you know, as a as the, one of the host experiences of a physician having these types of conversations with patients. And so um, dialogue-based interventions are probably going to be the most useful. And so this means that uh, the conversation has to go both ways, right? So a dialogue-based intervention, and this applies to whether it's healthcare providers or just, you know, you and me on the street having a conversation with someone, the dialogue, the dialogue goes both ways. So you have to allow for the other person to, you know, kind of lay out their beliefs. Um, and, and one thing that is really important is that uh, research has found that people who hold conspiratorial beliefs react pretty poorly to labels like anti-vaxxers or flat earthers. So when you're discussing or dialoguing about these types of beliefs with someone who holds them, it's really a good idea to kind of step back from those terms because then we've shifted into a place where the other person feels that their identity is being attacked. Um, and, and it's less a dialogue about the belief and more a, a dialogue about protecting that person's sense of identity or sense of well-being. So in the conversations, steering away from words like that, um, and there's a you know there's a difference between saying someone is a flat earther and saying someone believes in the idea of a flat earth, right? So shifting toward that type of language kind of destigmatizes um, the fact that someone holds this belief and may make them more open to having a conversation with you. Now, I want to be clear that it's not about legitimizing the belief in saying, well, some people believe the earth is flat, some people believe the earth is round, it's just whatever, we have two opinions, um, but it is about reducing as much social stigma or social pressure on the person you are dialoguing with so that the conversation can truly be about beliefs and about information and not necessarily about like a personal reaction to an attack. Um, so that's, I think that's one of the most important takeaways from this is that it's not going to be something we can just combat with one conversation or one article. Like it's going to be an ongoing process um, where not only do those of us who have people in our lives that, that believe in conspiracy theories or have some sort of type of conspiratorial thinking that you know we have to do the work of dialoguing with them, but it is going to be up to institutions to continue to build back trust and to continue to, or to begin, maybe not even continue, but to begin to posit themselves as trustworthy institutions. And I think one of the ways that that's possible is, is for transparency about history. You know, the, a, a recent example of this is the uh, mass graves of residential schools being uncovered in Canada and it taking such a long time for the Canadian government to even acknowledge the damage that residential schools did. So why would you, if you were a First Nations person in Canada or connected to that community anyway, why would you trust the government that can't even admit to something that happened in the in in the past? You know, I think I think that just kind of highlights why how if we continue to believe in this 
we continue to have this type of governance or this type of institution building where we just move forward, we move forward, we never look back, and we never acknowledge mistakes, uh, we're going to see a wider and wider gap between um, sources of authority and belief or trust in those authority sources. Uh, and so I think it's beholden upon us to demand transparency from our government, to demand transparency, you know, to demand that, you know, mistakes be acknowledged, at least at the very least acknowledged, right? Like, I, I, I think there's a bigger conversation to be had about things like reparations or making amends for mistakes, but like, at the very least, acknowledging mistakes and errors and traumas committed by these institutions so that we can continue or that we can start to rebuild back trust. Um, and so this kind of wraps up everything that I wanted to say. And I hate leaving it with this idea of, like, there's really not a whole lot you can do, but, you know, a takeaway, one thing that we can all do is just be very, very careful about where we get information. Just begin to examine where we get our information um, and to be okay with not knowing everything, to be okay with saying, to be okay with saying something like, I don't know how the vaccines work. Right. And just being honest about that, that lack of knowledge. And instead of seeking to fill it, to fill in that knowledge and just to, uh, to fill in that gap and to, to seem like an authority source, to just kind of sit with the tension of I don't know the answer. And it's OK that it's OK that we don't know the answers to everything. Right. And, and there is information out there. There is you know reputably sourced information and we don't have to know the answer immediately. Just because the Internet exists doesn't mean we have to in an instant, know everything all the time. So I think that's what I'm going to leave this episode with is kind of like my call to action is just be okay with not knowing, not knowing the answer, um, and just kind of opening yourself up to taking the time to research, not research, taking the time to investigate information uh, and the sources of information and staying in a space of I don't know the answer for uh, longer than 20 seconds. So thank you uh, again for this episode, uh, for listening along. Uh, I'll be linking all these sources uh, on the website so you can check out the articles yourself. Uh, and I highly recommend the QAnon video by Andrew Callahan. Um, and with that, uh, thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please subscribe and review the podcast. Thank you and see you in the next episode.